Hello, and welcome to April's IBMS, first of three podcasts that were recorded live at IBMS Congress. In this episode, we talked to Professor in Medical Microbiology, Sally Cutler, about the pandemic, COVID-19, and future testing strategies. We're then joined in lab life by the ever-inspiring Malcolm Robinson, the founder of Harvey's Gang, to discuss his history with the charity and his hopes for the future. Welcome to our IBMS Pod Congress special. And we're joined by Professor Sally Cutler, who is a professor in medical microbiology at the School of Health, Sport and Bioscience at the University of East London. Um, Sally, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invite. No problem. And could we kick off then by you telling us a little bit more about your background and your role and what you do? Okay, sure. Um, well, sort of after I graduated from university, sort of I was desperate to get out to work and um, the lure of medical microbiology was what was really sort of enticing for me. So I sort of started my job at the bench in diagnostic microbiology and um, I'm showing my age now. It's when sort of you were appointed as a junior B medical laboratory scientific officer, MLSO. So that's going back a little bit now. Obviously, we've been rebranded and rejigged quite a few times since then. So it was going back to those days. And um, sure, I absolutely loved sort of doing that sort of diagnostic microbiology. I found it absolutely fascinating. And um, I, I sort of worked around the benches, built up a lot of expertise and skill and worked First of all, at the Royal London Hospital. Then I I moved out to the countryside and worked at Stoke Mandeville for quite a while. But I I also realised that I was getting a little bit bored because I didn't see much in the way of career progression. And I I loved the microbiology. I loved the hands-on, sort of getting your hands dirty, really. And so it was really that practical side of the microbiology that I found very, very fascinating. And the career progression working as a biomedical scientist is very much so that if you want to progress you're going to manage it and um quite honestly i didn't see the fascination in working out people's annual leave rosters and (laughs) things like that that just didn't do it for me it was the microbiology was my passion Mm. so i decided at that stage that actually making a shift into the research was probably the best thing to do and um I actually saw a, a position that was advertised at Charing Cross Hospital and um, that was working on a disease that was very new and novel at the time. That was actually to do research into Lyme disease. Mm. And so this was sort of in the days when Lyme disease was new, newly discovered. We didn't know too much about the clinical picture. Um, we knew that we'd got it reported from Europe, but we didn't know how much. And so this particular opportunity was a part-time PhD, but I was also running a diagnostic lab for Lyme disease at Chancas Hospital. So it was to run that. And also in my spare time, if I got any of that, to actually do research as well. So that just seemed absolutely perfect for me. So I made that move and um, carried on and I did my PhD. So this is where I, I built my passion for ticks, which is it was sort of blood-sucking, um, sort of a courage that nobody really loves, but uh, somebody has to love them, and they are quite fascinating. And so I worked with Lyme disease for quite a while, and um, I also did a, a bit of a sideways step and looked at some of the relaxing fevers as well, which are also transmitted by ticks, but soft ticks as opposed to hard ticks. And um, as I've carried on through my career, and I've successfully got my PhD, but you carry on researching and as you progress through, I think you, you never lose anything or leave anything. You just add more infections and diseases to your repertoire and you just carry on expanding your skill base. So I've kind of expanded into many other different diseases, um, not all tick-borne, some are in the broader area of zoonotic disease. And, and this is really bringing us right up to the SARS-CoV-2 because COVID, again, is a zoonotic disease. So sort of this really is, is how I, I've drifted into the, the COVID arena. And can you remember where you were and what you were doing and what your thoughts were when COVID was kind of coming from Italy and then, you know, it arrived in the UK? Um, it was quite a memorable time. It was quite a, a, an emotionally challenging time for me as well. And I, I do 
do some work with the Science Media Centre and we'd just done a, a big sort of um, press day on Lyme disease so that we could get all the newspapers in and just yeah. dispel many of the myths and fantasies about Lyme disease. Mm. So we'd, we'd just done that sort of in November and um, I was looking at some of the disease reports that were coming out mm. and they were describing this virus that had been described in China and I, I had sight of some of that but then mm. sort of life events kind of snowballed and um, I actually lost my husband in December oh, so, so basically yeah, sort of it, it was a little bit of autopilot and um, a little bit of just struggling to cope and keep up with delivering the lectures I've promised to give and so sort of just a couple of days after he passed away I was going to sort of do a couple of teaching sessions down at Surrey University and things like that so it was trying to keep on with things and I at my own university there were sessions I couldn't just hand over to other people so it was a matter of sort of put a brave face on and struggle on but I, I had actually got a trip that we were both meant to be going on to Australia just after that and I, I went anyway because I, I wanted to see my daughter who's over there yeah and so did that came back and um after the funeral which was in January sort of everything really started to take off big time yeah, with sort of COVID spreading sort of through obviously through Italy, all the problems that were going on there. And um, predictably it spread to the UK um, probably a lot earlier than they actually said it was. But yeah. uh, then we, I can remember being absolutely horrified looking at the predictions of how many deaths there were going to be. It's 50,000 deaths. And I was thinking, that's just off the Richter scale. Yeah. And I just couldn't get my head around those numbers. And, um, Sadly, look at us now, and we've well exceeded that. With your background and your knowledge, in those early days, were you... Because, you know, there were people saying, oh, I've got to go home from work from home for a couple of weeks. Were you seeing it as, as that kind of short-term thing? Were you hoping it would be over within a year? Or because of your background, were you able to say, this is going to stretch on and on and on? Um, it's a bit yes and no. And I didn't think the virus was going to go away. Um, so that's just not normal for something that finds itself in a new host that it's doing very, very successfully in. Yeah. And it, it, it was on to a good number and it wasn't going to change that. So mm. basically, I, I didn't think it was going to particularly go away. Um, whether we managed to sort of rustle up and repurpose an antiviral treatment that would have been really effective at managing it, that, that would have been an option. I had no prediction that the vaccine was going to become available quite as quickly as it did mm -hmm. but that really was a success story very much but that really stems from the fact that we'd had SARS-1 we'd had MERS and there was actually a lot of research that had been going on looking at developing coronavirus vaccines yes and so that had been going on in the background not really attracting too much attention and so basically this was just another coronavirus so to actually repurpose the work and the research that had gone on and direct it towards SARS-CoV-2 was actually something that was sort of in the pipeline and it was quite straightforward, I think, really, to actually repurpose. But obviously, you've got to get all the safety data before you can get the vaccines approved and yeah. um, start rolling them out in earnest. So in answer to your question, I thought it was going to potentially be quite protracted. Um, mm that it, it would sort of certainly put microbiology on the map. Everybody now knows yes. about microbiology and, and everybody yeah. knows about PCR and all kinds <laughs> of other tests now. So um, it is certainly sort of helped sort of give that dissemination of knowledge and awareness of microbiology, which is one of the positives, I think, that has come out of it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, it's difficult to predict and I think sort of, you can look at what the modelers were saying and sometimes that's been sort of labelled as doom and gloom because it didn't thankfully reach fruition. Yeah. But the, the models are only based on the information we have at the time and we were learning. We yeah. were having to learn and deal with it on the hoof and so that's part of the challenge. Mm. And you've been incredibly busy over the last couple of years. You've been one of the kind of the faces and voices of biomedical science in the pandemic. How did that come about and how have you found us? Um, I've 
worked a little bit with the media anyway. So as I mentioned, uh, I've done some work with the Science Media Centre and sometimes they send me articles to comment on and give my opinion on different sort of disease activity and things like that and I either have time or I don't have time to actually comment on that so I, I kind of like drifted into the COVID arena probably a little bit late to the party because obviously I had all the emotional things I was dealing with yeah, right at the beginning so I've not been on their radar so much but um, I can remember sort of just before we went into lockdown um, LBC had asked me whether I would do a demonstration of the efficacy of hand washing. And so obviously that wasn't with viruses, it was bacteria. And um, we sampled people's mobile phones and we swabbed them and just plated those swabs out onto agar plates, incubated them overnight. And they were growing absolutely horrendous things <laughs> the next day. So yeah. it, it was just a useful demonstration of sort of high contact surfaces and the ability to transfer things across from those surfaces back onto your hands. So it doesn't matter how well you've washed your hands, if you then clutch your phone as everybody does, you're going to be re-inoculating your hands with everything that's on your phone. So um, I, I started working a little bit with LBC and they kept asking for lots of involvement and comment on COVID as that expanded. I think other radio stations heard me speaking on LBC and so I ended up on Times Radio, Three Counts Radio, B BBC. Um, we also, at the university, we, I was on the infection control group mm -hmm. for the university. So we were coming up with our COVID safe strategies and how are we going to deal with cases? How are we going to contact trace? So I was very much involved with all that kind of um, side from the university perspective. We also went on and developed an asymptomatic test centre. We, I was talking to lots of groups nationally as well about seeing whether we could get involved in sort of the, the call for equipment and testing and just to try and deal with the, the diagnostic bottlenecks that were very apparent at the time. So I was involved in a lot of those discussions, but then because I'm in the university setting and we don't have ISO accreditation and things like that, so because we went ISO compliant, um, it was decided not to sort of support us setting up our own yeah. diagnostic setting. But we got very involved in the asymptomatic test centre. Um, we staffed it with our students. And so I'm very much involved in teaching biomedical science students at the University of East London. And um, so this was a wonderful opportunity for them to put their theory into practice. And generally for new graduates, it's very difficult for them for the employability because they've got no practice. Yeah. And actually this was a, a great opportunity for them to actually put their skills into practice. So we had them staffing our asymptomatic test centre. We So when everybody else was working from home, we were spending all our time going in still, <laughs> providing the testing for people that had to go in. Yeah. And also the students, because we had a lot of residential students, we had a lot of overseas students as well. So obviously we needed provision testing for them. Mm. So yes, that, that also got involved with quite a few TV productions, um, various TV companies coming in and filming, which was great for the students as well because they, they got their face on the TV. What a great thing to show your mom and dad at home. <laughs> yeah. so, hey, not only am I doing my degree, but I'm on TV as well. So it, it was really good for them. What's it been well. like? It's like moving from being an academic uh, based in university to now becoming like this media kind of well, present in the media and this media personality a bit more have you found that it's just part of the job for me yeah. um and i think actually science communication is something that you should not be scared of mm. um actually explaining what's going on it is probably better that they have that from the scientific perspective rather than somebody who doesn't really know what's going on and mm. there are quite a few people that maybe have got slightly strange opinions so i know I guess I'm not a naturally outspoken, confident person, but it's just the fact that, well, I've got the knowledge, I've got the skills, I like to feel that I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. So I think it's better that somebody with that knowledge can actually engage with science communication and let people know. Let people ask their questions as well, because a lot of people were very fearful They'd heard a lot of um, strange things on social media and people were confused and they were worried, they were scared. 
and to be able to actually have that communication, to be able to ask questions directly to somebody who knew a little bit about the topic mm. was, I think, very reassuring for them. Yeah. And more recently, you've been writing some pieces in The Guardian, um, some other um, publications as well, um, on the testing strategy moving forward. So could you tell us a bit how, about how you see COVID evolving now at this stage and, and the impact on the profession as we move away from the pandemic? Well, we, we do have to make that move from pandemic response to endemic and managing it because it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to live with us. Um, it's found a wonderful niche. There are plenty of humans. And as long as the virus can keep evolving and throwing up new variants, which it seems to be very good at doing, um, then it'll carry on sort of having waves, hopefully ripples as opposed to tsunamis, that um, there will be repeated waves that go through. Is there, is there any truth in the fact that gradually over time, viruses get weaker? Um, or is that just kind of some folklore? Many of the evolutionary biologists will support that theory. Um, but remember, this is very early days on evolutionary terms. Mm. So whether it's a strategy from the virus to actually become weaker, um, it's not really clear at this point in time. But basically, from, from an infectious agent's point of view, do you really want to kill your host? Because if you kill all of your hosts, then you've got then nobody left to infect. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little bit of a, a suicide mission. Mm. So actually to be able to cause lots of highly transmissible infection, but not kill most of your hosts is probably a better strategy. But I, I also am cautioning about this comparison of the severity because we're not comparing like with like. And in the earlier waves that we had, alpha, beta, even Delta, um, you had a lot of the population that were getting this infection that hadn't been previously exposed. And you're now comparing those with what's happening with the Omicron wave when virtually everybody, certainly in the UK, has either been infected previously with Delta or one of the previous forms of SARS-CoV-2, or they've been immunized, or both. So you haven't got an immunologically naive population anymore. You're, so comparing sort of some of the early severity with the severity now is you're not comparing like with like. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm a little bit cautious about saying, oh, it's less virulent. Um, I think really what you need to do is actually set up that experiment in naive models. Maybe you could do that with an animal model, such as mink or something like that, that haven't been exposed to SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, a, a significant proportion with one of the more virulent variants and run that in parallel with Omicron. And then you might get data that will conclusively say, okay, what, what was your death rate in this group? What was your death rate in that group? But you'd have to do it in a, a matched immunologically naive population. Um, because sort of mink haven't been vaccinated. Yes. Um, and hopefully they haven't all been infected previously. But sort of when you're looking at the human population, so many people have now had one of the variants and been exposed to that or received the vaccine or both. So it's a little bit difficult. Yeah, of course. But um, it's probably good in a way because you've got people that haven't received vaccine that are getting natural infection and if it is a less virulent one then that's good news because it's going to give them that degree of immunity even if they've refused to engage with the vaccination program yeah. so um, on a population basis you want to build up the immunity in the community um, so if we can do that, then sort of that's going to protect everyone. Yeah, that is a nice touch of alliteration there, community and immunity. <laughs> uh, people should have used a bit more. Not intentionally at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so what, what, what do you think will happen next? What happens now, Sally? Well, the crystal ball doesn't always work. Um, I think really sort of, if you'd asked me this a few months ago, I don't think anyone would have seen Omicron coming. Mm. And... Um, how Omicron came is still a little bit of a poorly understood area. There, there are two different theories. One is sort of a potential for a long-term infection 
Um, because there have been a few cases that have been documented sort of where somebody's been infected continually for nine months or more. Oh. So generally people who are immunosuppressed, and so they're not able to totally clear the virus, okay. but the virus has persisted within them and potentially mutating as it goes. But that wouldn't account for such a drastic shift that we actually saw with the evolution of Omicron. Yeah. But the... Probably the, the more favoured opinion is the fact that and it's a zoonotic disease, so it's a multi-host um, organism, SARS-CoV-2. And we, we've seen infections that have gone from humans into their pet cats, for instance, sometimes dogs, um, zoological animals, all kinds mm. of other animals that get infected and have been infected from humans that have had SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. But... Um, the idea is that maybe there's been an infection that's gone from the humans into some other animal that could potentially have been infected with its own coronavirus because sort of there are many coronaviruses that are a bit more specialized to circulate in their, their particular chosen vertebrate hosts. And so if you've got a dual infection, for instance, you can have something like a recombination event and, um, you would have a massively different antigenic profile. And we've seen this massively different antigenic profile with Omicron that has then gone back into the human population. So it it appears not to be that a stepwise mutation. It's a recombination event. Um, so the possibility of that happening in some other animal, though it's, it's been hypothesized, maybe small rodents, rats, something like that may have come to it. Wherever you've got people, you've got rats. Yes. So um, not that we like to confess to it, but I'm, rats are everywhere. So where people are, there's, there's rats. So it could well have spilt into rats and then spilt back into people. So, okay. yeah. yeah. With, um, when you said earlier, you can only work with the data that you have. Obviously, at many points throughout the pandemic, there have been predictions based on data. They're completely wrong. We look back at them and say, why on earth did they think that? That's madness. But obviously, they were working from the data they had. Right now, have we got enough data to make any kind of future predictions? Or are there too many variables and we've just got to kind of roll with it and see how things pan out? There, there are probably too many variables. And um, each, each variant is different. Um, people are different as well. We, we've got different genetic backgrounds. You've got all kinds of other host factors that alter susceptibility. Um, some countries have got older populations. Other countries have got younger populations. And so the, the impact is going to vary as well, depending on that. Um, and then you've got all kinds of other co-infections that might be going on that could influence. It's really, really difficult because... If you're doing any kind of prediction or modeling, you have to make some pretty general assumptions. You assume that the virus is the same. You assume that the infectious dose will be the same. You assume that the recipient will respond in a similar way. Mm. Uh, and so it's just lots and lots of assumptions. So the fact that the models don't always quite get it right, yeah. it is quite sort of, uh, I think so the, there is value in the models, but you cannot sort of, say that that's exactly what's going to happen um actually looking into the future gazing into that crystal ball doesn't quite work but it's, it's good from looking at how to actually behave and monitor a population for instance um what sample size might you need to have for a surveillance program to be able to get data that might be useful to predict of where we're going um there are all kinds of useful bits like that that can actually come from modeling. Yeah. And what kind of um, testing and what kind of uh, monitoring of the population should we be doing going forward, do you think? What would be the most useful? Well, the, the government are adamant that they, they want to carry on following their cohorts that they're following through. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a relatively small cohort. And cohort studies are really quite expensive and a lot of the driver for actually stepping back from a lot of the testing that we're currently engaged in was actually for financial reasons. So it's, it's quite an expensive way of getting some data. It does have some value, but I think possibly for a wider way of getting surveillance that's totally anonymized would be things like looking at wastewater screening. So yeah. this way you can actually look at the effluent from a whole town 
and you can get an idea of the level of disease activity without knowing which individuals, obviously, but you yeah. know the level of activity. And you can also use that to screen for emergence of new variants. And what we want is a cost-effective way of being able to monitor and see whether we've got something new that's popping up. And at the moment, we've got this variant of Omicron, the BA2, yes. which is sort of increasing quite rapidly. It seems to be even more transmissible but the severity seems on a parallel with Omicron Mark 1. Mm. So basically, that's something that we've seen sort of spreading quite rapidly throughout Europe as well. And it's here and it's rising here as well. Um, so actually watching the emergence of new variants, you can do that through wastewater monitoring. And it's... It's quite a, a passive way of actually getting the data. Um, so it, it's whether it's deemed to be ethically appropriate, um, but it's certainly a cost-effective way of actually getting that surveillance. And it goes on a little bit anyway for looking at some other areas that are of interest in the microbiological world, like sort of monitoring for antibiotic resistance and mm. things like that. So that's done through wastewater surveillance as well. Are there potential ethical issues around people not giving their permission? Because you can't ask all the individuals to give their permission for you to test the wastewater. What, what's the issue? But you can't actually identify the individuals that have contributed to that sample either. So it Very is true. anonymized. Yeah. So, <laughs> so nice it, anonymized sample. It, it literally yeah. is a way of doing a population surveillance that's totally, totally anonymized. Yeah. So it's already been, your wastewater testing has already been done with antimicrobial resistance. Yes, yes. So what barriers are, are up now to stop us doing it for COVID? Could we just start doing it because it's already been... Uh, there are quite a few areas where it is being rolled out and piloted. Um, mm. So it's whether that gets some kind of support to sustain it for a prolonged period of time. Mm. Other things that we need to think about is how we're going to protect our vulnerable individuals. And this is something that I don't think the government has quite thrashed out yet. So I'd like to see a little bit more of a plan. And I think this sort of, oh, let's, let's stop all the free testing and everything else, which is looming really close now. Uh, I think that's a bit premature until we actually have a plan of how we're going to protect our vulnerable individuals. So I, I have an elderly mother and um, she's going to be 93 at the weekend. And so basically it would not be good news if she got COVID. So... I always test every time before I go to see her. Yeah. Because I need to know, am I going to put her at risk by visiting her? And so it, it reassures me the fact that I can test negative with the lateral flow test. And then I can go and I can see her, I can help her, and I can give her a hug, which she needs. So basically, that gives me confidence that I'm not going to put her at risk. So if we get rid of all the provision of free lateral flow tests, then how are people going to protect vulnerable individuals? Say you've got a relative who's hospitalised and you want to go and visit them. Mm. Again, you would like to check that you're not going to put them at risk. Oh, and, and sort of care homes um, and all kinds of other environments. And sure, maybe they might provide tests for the staff, but what about all the visitors? So... I think really we need to have some right. kind of strategy thought through of how we're going to protect our more vulnerable people in the population. Mm. And aside from COVID, what other future viral threats do you see on the horizon right now? It's sometimes difficult to predict exactly what might come through. There, there are lots of areas of disease activity. Um, certainly sort of importation of exotic diseases from elsewhere and we travel a lot and I think sort of obviously people haven't traveled much for a couple of years mm -hmm. and uh, I think now everybody's saying hey I, I want to book my flight I want to go on holiday and they're, right. they're going to go off to these far fun places in the world come back with maybe unwanted passengers um, in the way of infectious diseases yes. um, there are also people that are going to want to visit sort of from developing countries and come over to the UK. Um, you've also got sort of mass movements of people. We've got the refugees coming from Ukraine at the moment. 
um, all kinds of issues like that that are happening. So a lot of population movement. And with that comes the risk of importing various infections from around the globe. So there, there are sort of various clinics that operate, networks that operate in the UK, where if you have got a travel history and you present with an unknown febrile disease, that they will fast track. Just to check that you haven't brought Ebola or something really horrible like that with you. Um, so we have actually had importations recently. It was picked up really rapidly, contained. It was not a problem. Um, there's a lot of activity for other diseases such as avian influenza. It, influenza is a disease that's been on the radar for our next pandemic for quite a while. Yeah. And a lot of the time, while we've been watching influenza and we've been screening, we've been monitoring and all eyes have been on influenza for our next pandemic. And through the side door came SARS-1, came MERS, and then of course SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. So basically, Sometimes you can be looking one direction and something will take you from the side door by surprise. So I think knowing what areas of the world have got disease activity, um, actually sort of being aware of that, looking at travel history, making sure that you do not do silly things that, that put yourself at risk. Um, at the moment, <coughs> and for instance, we've got a one of our students who's going to do a survey in Ghana. There's a lot of yellow fever activity at the moment in Ghana. Yeah, there are all kinds of um, repositories of data that exist. There's a thing called Global Map, and you can actually go onto this on the web. It's freely available, and you can look at whatever exotic country you've booked for your holiday, and you can click on there and see all the disease reports of what's active and the way of infectious diseases in that location. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a useful interactive way of actually seeing disease activity and it, you can sort of see all the reports of what's going on whether it be rabies or um, botulism or all kinds of infectious diseases so you'll, you'll get to see all the reports and you can link through to all the descriptions so that, that's quite a, a good tool that you can actually use. Um, so surveillance is there. Um, why the world has been so disjointed with the response to SARS-CoV-2. That is something I have never truly understood. And the fact that we've been having preparedness planning for easily the last decade, um, coordinated through the WHO and organizations such as that, that are looking at surveillance data, coming up with sort of plans, uh, provisionings, containment level three, containment level four laboratories for some of these highly infectious agents. And some, that, that's all been sort of planned, but what happened? What went wrong when SARS-CoV-2 spread across the world? Why were the countries so disjointed? Why did we look at what happened in China and thought, oh gosh, that's sort of a bit scary. And then all of a sudden it was in Europe. Oh gosh, that was a bit scary. And every country saw what was coming and it made exactly the same mistakes. Hopefully we won't get into our country. <laughs> But it did, and we all made the same mistakes. And this lack of learning from each other, this lack of cohesion and a joined up response. Look at the poor distribution of vaccines. And we're patting ourselves on the back in the UK and in many developed countries saying, oh, well, we protect our population. But look at other countries and Ethiopia, Somalia, um, Tanzania, you're looking at vaccination rates of under 3% in the population. So this is a global disease. We need a global response. And at the moment, it's a very fragmented, sort of uncoordinated response that we're having. And I think we need to learn from this experience. And we need to behave much more with a global joined up response. Well, on the note of learning from each other, we are at IBMS Congress. Um, and to end the podcast, we've got a few short questions um, to ask you on the event. So are you ready for those? Go for it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so what has been your highlight so far from Congress? The highlight for me is actually being at Congress. Um, rather than one specific thing, it's just the fact that 
Hey, I'm here. I'm in amongst lots of people, talking science, networking, meeting people, yeah. and listening to scientific presentations that are not through Teams or Zoom or something like that. And so from that point of view, I, I think just being back at a conference is the highlight mm. as a whole. Uh, and what are you most looking forward to seeing next? Really, it's this learning from what we've been through collectively and seeing that we can actually learn from the experience that COVID's given us and go forward positively. There are some good things that come out of it and everybody focuses on sort of what a terrible time and somebody was showing a slide of Back to the Future and sort of don't pick 2020. Oh, I was in that same fashion. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so basically, I, I think really it's the fact that there are some good things that have come out from what we've been through with COVID in the fact that I think now people on the street have heard biomedical scientists. They actually now know about what a PCR test is and that people in labs do all this testing and that they've done amazing testing during the pandemic. So I think actually for the promoting of the biomedical scientist, COVID has actually been really, really good. Um, so there's been a lot of investment into labs as well, instrumentation that's gone into labs. And that is absolutely incredible to see because it would not have happened without the pandemic. So there, there are some good things to come out of it. So it's, it's not all bad, um, but... To, to come back to what am I looking forward to seeing from here, for instance, I think really it's the fact that we can actually probably break out a little bit from our silo structure that we can actually think, hey, um, even though personally I've done much more in the way of bacteriology than virology, I, I can actually lend my hand and contribute to virology as well. So I think breaking out from that silo structure, networking, talking with people, working together and working as part of a team to go forward. And I think that's a positive. So it's not quite a specific, this particular no session, problem. <laughs> um, but it, it's a new way of working, a new way of going forward. And it, it's a positive attitude that we can do this. Let's bring out the best of people. And Sure, we've seen that happen. We can carry on doing that. And I think that's where we need to go forward. Okay. And the final question we've got is, can you summarise the event in one word? I think the, the one word would be amazing in the fact that it's amazing to be here again, <laughs> to be amongst people, to see old friends, to meet new friends, and um, yeah, amazing. I'd go. Okay. Professor Sally Cutler, thank you for joining us on IBMS Pod. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sally. Hello and welcome to Lab Life. In this month's instalment, we're talking to retired Chief Biomedical Scientist Malcolm Robinson, who will be best known to many as the founder of the charity Harvey's Gang. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. I'm sure many people will know about Harvey's Gang, but for those listeners who don't know, can you tell us a bit of the backstory, Malcolm, how it started? Yeah, sure. Um, there was a young lad by the name of Harvey who... Uh, went down tobogganing down the South Downs in 2006. Now, we don't get uh, snow on the South Downs very often, and it was a rare opportunity to go tobogganing, and all kids love a bit of snow. Yeah, of course. Uh, he, he tobogganed down the um, South Downs once and was actually worn out at the bottom and refused to get up and go back up to the top again. Um, he looked very pale, and his mum and dad thought, oh, he doesn't look quite so good. Perhaps he's coming down with a cold. We'll take him to the GP and see what. what. He went to the GPs, and they had a look and said, oh, you better go to A&E because he doesn't look very well. Uh, he was seen in A&E, and they took some samples, and they said, as usual, with pathology tests, away you go, uh, contact your GP in the next couple of weeks, and the results will be back with you. Um, so they went home and were discussing about sending him to school the following day or not. And a couple of hours later, Harvey's mum, Claire, got a phone call from A&E to say, look, really sorry, but uh, Harvey's haemoglobin is 36. 
um, which is mm. incredibly low. Yeah, yeah. Uh, normally, we would expect about 120 or so. Um, and he needs an urgent transfusion tonight. And they went, oh. So they took him back into uh, A&E and they got second samples taken and additional samples. And he started questioning, well, you took these samples this afternoon. Why are you taking more? Why do I need more samples? And that started his questioning journey. And we in the laboratory processed his samples and we started his healthcare journey as far as we were aware. And he was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And throughout all of this, he was questioning, why are you taking so many samples? Well, I've mm. just had a transfusion. Why are you taking more samples? You might make me anemic and I'll need more samples again and more transfusions. So yeah, the play specialist said, look, you know, We'll send him down, see if we can send him down to the lab to have a look around, see. Uh, and they contacted me and arranged a, a tour. So I gave him a tour of our laboratory and introduced him to our blood grouping machine. And he sat in front of our uh, blood grouping analyzer, which was the ortho innover at the time. And that takes 33 minutes to do a blood group. And he sat still the whole 33 minutes, which for a six-year-old is incredible. Yeah, of course. But he's not. He asked questions the whole time. There was no stopping in the questions. Well, what's it doing now? Why is it doing that? How is it doing that? Where does it go now? What's that robot bit doing? How do you know it's doing that? Oh, is that a barcode? How does that read? Where's the reader on it? You know, et cetera, et cetera, the whole time. And we gave him a tour around and you know, showed him the red cells in the, in the stock fridge. And we showed him platelets and showed him fresh frozen plasma as well, you know, how cold that was. And he was asking about donors and where it came from and how many donors it took and how do we get donors, et cetera. And he went away in his uh, little white coat, which came down to his ankles. It was the smallest one we had at the time. And he had a cardboard ID badge saying Harvey Buster Baldwin, trainee biomedical scientist. And he went away out of the lab with an old uh, IBMS Congress bag that I had with some goodies in it. And that was it, as far as I was concerned, for a while. And uh, we heard that he went to Royal Marsden. And then we didn't see him then for about a year. And he came back at that time with a different blood group because, you know, uh, the bone marrow transplant had uh, been done. And we started seeing bloods a bit more often. And it appeared our worst fears had come about that the bone marrow transplant they had had started to fail. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, you know, sent up some platelets to him one day and just took a picture of him and I out of my CPD folder and just put thinking of you, mate, and attached it to the bag of platelets as a label, uh, thinking no more of that. Mm. And eventually he had his last blood transfusion um, at, on a campsite in Devon uh, with his family, which is his favourite uh, family destination. Yeah, And we arranged that with uh, Derriford Hospital down in Plymouth. And... He had his farewell at the Worthing Crematorium, and I was asked whether I wanted to go to the crematorium. And I went, well, no, I'm not really sure. And they said, well, I think you should, Malcolm. I think you should. Yeah. Went, okay, so I did. There were over 2,000 people in the crematorium, absolutely packed. And on the big LCD screen in the crematorium was a picture of Harvey and I in our white, white coats. And I thought, good grief, what's that doing up there, you know? Why am I on, you know, such a big part of his farewell? Yeah. You know, what have I done to deserve that? You know, this was quite shocking to me. Uh, and then they played Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Eva Cassidy as the coffin went off. And I was in complete bits, um, not knowing about what had gone on. Um, and afterwards, his mum said, oh, thanks very much, you, you know, for what you did for Harvey. You really changed his life. I went, really what did i do mm. i can't understand and they went well he left the laboratory in his white coat and he went back to the pediatric ward in his white coat lording it over doctors and nurses everywhere <laughs> introducing himself because he was a trainee biomedical scientist <laughs> and he said i'm a scientist you know i'll be diagnosing your diseases in future and he went back to the pediatric ward uh, and he used his paper id badge to try and get through the swipe card access <laughs> We all know it wouldn't have worked, but luckily yeah. the specialist on the inside saw him and pressed the button and the doors opened for him. And he was able to explain all he'd seen and all he'd done in the laboratory to all his 
fellow patients, but he also then told all of the school at school assemblies. So all of his classmates all knew about what happened in the laboratories, what the machines were called, you know, what Eeyore and Donkey did uh, in the machines and, you know, what they were up to. So he was able to understand exactly what was happening and why the samples were taken and why they were filled to the line for coagulation tests and why it was important to ask who I am and what date of birth was when they labeled the samples. And so he, he was able to understand more of his healthcare. And after his passing, uh, the consultant pediatrician um, said, look, Mark, we said, I've got another seven kids that could do with a tour if you're up for it. And I went, good grief. I said, well, if you get better at your job and I don't have to come to any more farewells, I will you know, try and do something about it. Yeah. And I was in bits and I got dropped off at the pub and over a couple of pints, I thought about what would be, what went well, what didn't go so well. So a bit of a reflection. The lab coat. Well, that was no use. That came down to his ankles. We needed proper lab coats that were fit a child. We needed goodie bags, you know, not just the one-off one. We needed to standardize everything. And so that's what we started doing. And we came up with the idea of Harvey's Gang to remember Harvey. Uh, we contacted Ortho Clinical Diagnostics because we were changing our um, Ortho Innova to the Ortho Vision. And they got behind us and they actually arranged for the first ortho vision in the world to be delivered to Worthing. And we named that machine Harvey and have got a plaque on that machine. Yeah. They came up with the goodie bags for us and we managed to get some white coats uh, made by our staff to start with. Now we get them commercially made. Uh, but they're all the right sizes for the child. And a week later, we had our first pilot with William, who was on them. Um, October the 31st, so Halloween, and he came around with spiders tattooed on his face for Halloween, and we gave him a tour. Uh, and that went very, very well. And we said, right, okay, we'll launch it. We launched it on November the 7th, 2014, with Francesca, and she was a Fanconi's anemia. She was eight years old, and she'd had a um, bone marrow transplant. And she came around looking at what we did and how we did it and we were on the bbc and we launched harvey's going properly which was a very successful uh, launch it was one of those turning points i didn't understand the level of questions that kids have francesca's question to me at eight years old was malcolm do you ever think we'll grow solid organs from stem cells that is a, a very complex question Incredible. You know, and you wonder where that sort of level of questioning comes from. And so I thought, okay, you know, let's roll it out. So I pre presented at a local, a uh, couple of local regional transfusion meetings about what we did. And other trusts wanted to get on board with the idea. And so that's what we started. We started locally around the um, West Sussex and Kent regions, going slowly up towards London. And in September 2016, we realized we needed a bit more funding, a bit more um, help. And so we started the charity. I um, started the charity Harvey's Gang. It's the charity number is 1169181. And we've been going since September 2016 as a registered charity. And we are now potentially in 125 sites. It's amazing. Incredible. Absolutely incredible, I think. Uh, but I'm biased, I suppose. <laughs> um so, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, I think it was it 2019 when you stood down for, from your job to focus on Harvey's gang. Is that right? Yes, I, that's correct. Yeah, I um, retired in 2019, and that was just after I was very fortunate to win the Biomedical Scientist of the Year 2018. Mm, I remember. Retired in 2019, and I now volunteer, and my, my sole um, purpose is to promote Harvey's gang wherever I can talking to people are promoting it. Are, are you surprised that, you know, if, if you looked back 10 years ago, you, you, your life was heading in a certain direction, and then this, this one boy has completely changed the, the direction of your life, how, how does that feel? And looking back, how do you feel about it? I'm, you know, gobsmacked. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I was, you know, heavily involved in processing work and MHRA inspections, preparing for UCAS and CPA inspections and et cetera. Um, and I was just fully involved in paperwork and 
running the laboratories and over, over Worthing and Chichester sites. And then this youngster came along and has really changed my life completely. Um, more patient focused, um, trying to pr promote that, that, you know, behind every bottle is a patient. You know, we, we complain bitterly when we only get a half a tube of blood and there's blood on the outside and, and you know, we complain about it, think, well, we really shouldn't be processing this. You know, it, it's not up to standard. You know, we've got no idea of the patient journey that goes behind getting that sample from that patient, regardless of the age of the patient. They might be completely needle phobic. Children having to be held down by mum and dad while the sample's being collected. Yeah. I mean, that's just awful. You know, it, it, it's something that, you know, that barrier between parent and child, you never want to, to break. And to have the parents holding down the child, for example, is awful. But since I've retired, is you know this is what I do now is promote Harvey's gang, and that's what I've been doing it for the last three years. Admittedly, we've been it through COVID, um, where I've been you know, volunteered to go back to work, I volunteered to be a driver, and I volunteered for to be a vaccinator. Uh, yeah. Not that uh, they wanted me for many things, but hey ho. Um, but you know the offer was there, um, so Harvey's gang has been promote being promoted all places. We were quite quiet for our laboratory tours. We were lucky that Zoe Andrews in Guernsey managed to start Harvey's gang in August 2020, which was fantastic. They were deemed to be COVID-free at the time. Yes, I remember. I remember. And then uh, in November 2021, Mary's Paddington um, started Harvey's gang tours there again. Um, so this laboratory slowly are coming out of hibernation to start Harvey's gang tours again. And at the IBMS Congress, I met so many people that know about Harvey's Gang and were doing Harvey's Gang, and they said, "Well, they've got to go back and redust the uh, the paperwork and check again and look at trying to start." Hopefully, and we hopefully have attracted another four or five sites from that uh, Congress meeting. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So, what happens over over the next year, Malcolm? What are the plans for Harvey's Gang? And if anyone listening to this is inspired and interested, what should they do? Well. The plan are to expand Harvey's Gang, get all the all the sites operating Harvey's Gang tours, sharing the stories and the pictures with the IBMS and with myself, so we can promote the Harvey's Gang tours wherever they are on our blog and on our website and on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if people want to, then please email me, and that's Harvey's Gang at gmail.com. and I will then help you start. Harvey's Gang tours at your site. Um, as a charity, we supply the laboratory coats and the goodie bags. Um, and together, we will start Harvey's Gang in your sites. Over the next years, we hope that uh, I'm talking with the IBMS with long-term um, sustainability of Harvey's Gang. As I get older, I need support and I need somebody to look at taking the long-term view of where we go with Harvey's Gang. So we're talking to the IBMS about how the IBMS can support the long-term succession of Harvey's Gang, which is very, very exciting. Well, Mal very exciting. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's, it's a really inspiring story, and thank you for all the amazing work that you do. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. Very kind. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out, so whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.